Chapter 5 of In Seven Stages, A Flying Trip Around the World by Elizabeth Bisland. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Holly Jensen. Chapter 5, Fifth Stage. Hong Kong vanishes in a haze of sunlight. I am desperately tired, worn out with delights. My head swims with a glorious confusion of tropic splendors, and there is no room or capacity in it for more impressions just now. I will go below. It is a beautiful ship, like a fine yacht in its spacious commodiousness. Here and there hang canary cages thrilling with song. Narcissus bulbs and bowls are ablow with fluttering white flowers, and everywhere are deep-colored jars full of palms and ferns. The space assigned to me is a large pleasant white room from which a great square lifts up outward on the waterside, leaving me on intimate terms with the milky jade-tinted sea. Beneath this window is a broad divan, and here, laved in tepid sea winds and soothed by rippling whispers against the ship's side, I sleep, the languorous, voluptuous sleep of the tropics sink softly into that dim warm flood where one lies drenched submerged in unconsciousness a flood that ebbs slowly slowly bearing with it all fatigue and satiety and leaves me on the shores of life again in a pale lilac dusk glimmering with great stars yea verily life is good in this magnificent equatorial world again i am a great sponge absorbing beauty and delight with every pore every day brings new marvels and new joys i go to bed exhaustedly happy and wake up expectantly smiling everything pleases everything amuses me most of all perhaps the strong british atmosphere in which one finds oneself on board a p and o steamer I am, with the exception of a charming little old lady from Boston, who after two years of travel in the East has suffered no diminution of her respect for the common in Phillips Brooks, the only woman on the passenger list, so the British atmosphere has a pronounced masculine flavor, but despite even this limitation, it is interesting. The men, from captain to cook, are fine creatures. Their physical vigor is superb. Such muscles, such crisply curled hair, such clear ruddy skins, white teeth, and turquoise eyes. They are flat-backed and lean-loined. They carry their huge shoulders with a lordly swagger. They possess a divine faith in themselves and in England, and they have such an astonishing collection of accents. No two of them speak alike. The burly-bearded giant, three places off from me at table, speaks with a broad Scotch drawl. The handsome, natty little fourth officer with the black eyes and shy red face who sits opposite, in white duck from head to heel, has a bit of a Yorkshire burr on the tip of his tongue. The Ceylon tea planter talks like a New Yorker, and there are fully a dozen variations more between his accent and that of the tall young blonde whose fashionable Eton and Oxford inflections leave one speechless with awe and admiration of their magnificent eccentricities. Even the menu is of daily interest, for here I become for the first time familiar with food upon which the folk of the English novels are fed. 
I learned to know and appreciate the bath bun and the scotch scone. I make the greatly to be prized acquaintance of the English meat pie, including Mr. Weller's favorite wheel and ammer, and I recognize touching manifestations of British loyalty in the sweets christened impartially with appellations of royalty, Victoria Jelly Roll, Alexandra Wafers, and Beatrice Tarts. Waterloo pudding is one of our favorite desserts, and other British triumphs and glories adorn the bill of fare from time to time. Sunday, the Lascar crew, who have contented themselves all the week with garments of blue cotton check and red turbans, suddenly bloom and burgeon garden-wise. We are lounging in our bamboo chairs on the wide decks, the awning flutters lazily in the breeze, and we, swimming between two worlds of burning blue, are endeavoring by supreme indolence to recover from the fatigues of morning service when this startlingly variegated vision bursts upon us. All the brown feet are bare, but the brown nether limbs are clad airily in Swiss muslin trousers, over which falls to the knee a tunic of the same material, striped with fine lines of gold, silver, or scarlet thread, and girdled with a vivid-hued sash. This again partly covered with a loose silk waistcoat, pink, green, or blue, glittering with spangles brimless hats of red and yellow straw like inverted flat-bottomed baskets are wrapped with many scarlet folds and the bosuns add one more touch of splendor in their great wrought silver buttons and yards of silver chain from which hang suspended the whistle of their office i am at first inclined to suspect them of having looted the wardrobe of an odalisque but am assured it is only the muster for the usual sunday morning inspection and their accustomed costume for such occasions a brief but imposing ceremony this the officers exchange their white jackets for blue coats the doctor solemnly confers with the captain, and those in imperfect hygienic condition stand on one foot in apologetic embarrassment as they catch the piercing and reproachful glance of their commander, who passes ceremoniously down the line accompanied by the entire staff, acknowledging with condescending salute the row of brown hands lifted to the brown brows. The boatswain sounds his whistle, the ranks are broken, and the affair is over. Everyone goes and gets something to drink as a freshener after so much excitement, and the officers change back into white jackets. As the little fawn-eyed punkawalla, to put it in American, the boy who pulls the hanging fan over the table, passes me, I snatch off his turban and find his round brown head shaved smooth as my palm, except for the one lock over the brow by which Mahomet is to catch him up to heaven. He finds this liberty only an amusing condescension on my part, and smiles indulgently and shyly, following me about always afterwards with little mute services and attentions, so sweet-natured are these eastern folk." we sail through the blue days on a level keel the sea does not even breathe but it quivers in the terrible splendors of the noon with undreamable peacock radiances the sky arches to a dome of intolerable vastness filled with a blinding light hardly can its glories be borne even in the shadow of the wide awning where one lies half the day in indian lounging chairs warmed to the very heart and soaked through and through with color and light 
There are no pageants of sunsets. The burning ball, undimmed by any cloud, falls swiftly and is quenched in the ocean, and after an instant of crepuscular violet, the prodigious tide of light vanishes abruptly, like some vast conflagration blown out suddenly, and as suddenly succeeded by the night of ebon blackness laced with lusters of starry clusters. Then the constellations hang in the awful vault of darkness like enormous gleaming lamps, trembling in suspension, and from the swart deep beneath whirl up myriads of great ghostly jewels, glittering with unearthly fires and trailing a broad waving path of spectral silver along the black waters in our wake. Every hour brings us nearer the equator, and on the morning of the 23rd of December, we sight Singapore, seventy miles only from the center of heat. The waters of the harbor are curiously banded in broad lines of brilliant violet, green, and blue, each quite distinct and with no fusions of color. Against the skyline everywhere are the feathery heads of palms, and the tremendous riot of verdure upon all the hills is of a vivid, dazzling green. The vegetation is enormous, rampant, violent. It stands round about the place like an army with banners, ready to rush in at any breach and destroy. It contests every inch of space with man, and aided by incessant heat and moisture, constantly wrests from him his conquests and buries them in a fury of viridescence. Seven hundred years has this city of the lions stood but the never-ending battle with tropic nature's lust for disintegration has left it with no monuments of its great age, no venerable buildings to testify to its antiquity. In the 12th century, Singapore was the capital of the Malayan Empire, but in 1824 the British purchased it from the Sultan of Johor, scarcely more than a heap of ruins. Only those who travel to these eastern ports can form any adequate conception of the ability which has directed English conquest in the Orient. When they bullied the Malayan sultan into selling Singapore, they were apparently acquiring a ruinous and unimportant territory. Today this port is the entrepot of Asian commerce, a coaling station for vessels of all countries, a deep, safe harbor for England's own ships and men of war and a point from which she can command both seas. The inhabitants of her strait settlements number considerably more than half a million, and the exports and imports are each in value something like 10 million pounds yearly. The United States alone buys there every 12 month goods worth more than $4 million. It is very hot. The tall blonde, who is grandson of one of the world-famous conquerors of the East, arrays himself in snowy silk and linen, and dons a tarai hat with a floating scarf. But even in this attire, moisture sparkles on his rosy skin, and his yellow curls cling damply to his brow. The Ceylon tea planter, twenty years resident in the tropics, is garbed in the ordinary costume of civilization, and apparently suffers no discomfort. Accompanied by these two and the lady from Boston, I go ashore. Queer little square carriages, made for the most part of Venetian blinds, wait for us, drawn by disconsolate ponies the size of sheep. Conveyance in the east is a constant source of unhappiness to me. 
I was deprecatory with the jinrikisha men in Japan. I humbled myself before the chair-bearers of Hong Kong. And now I go and make an elaborate apology to this wretched little beast before I can reconcile it to my conscience to climb into the gary or let him drag me about at a gallop. The earth beneath us is a deep red. The trees are brightly green. To the right lies a rainbow sea and overhead a sky of burning blue. The town is every color, blinding white, azure, green, red, yellow. The houses heavy squares of lime-washed brick, mostly without windows. Interiors are gloomily cool, and more than enough of the huge fierce glare of day enters through the open door. We pass swiftly through the business part of the town, and beyond to the broad red water road where the houses face the sea. One is suddenly aware that the sensory nerves awake in this heat to marvelous acuteness. The eye seems to expand its iris to great size and be capable of receiving undreamed possibilities of luminosity and hue. The skin grows exquisitely sensitive to the slightest touch, the faintest movement of the air. Numberless fine undercurrents of sound reach the ear and the sense of smell is so strong that the perfumes of fruit and flowers at a great distance are penetrating as if held in the hand. One smells everything. Delicious hot scents of vegetation, the steaming of the earth, and the faint acrid odors of the many sweating bodies of workers in the sun. The water road is full of folk, Tall Hindus go by leading little cream-white bulls with humped necks who drag rude carts full of merchandise or fruits, pineapples, mangoes, and coconuts. English officials spin past in dog carts with barefooted muslin-clad grooms up behind, and wealthy, unctuous Chinese merchants bowl about in rickyshaws. Nearly all foot passengers are half or three-quarters naked, it is an open-air museum of superb bronzes who, when they condescend to clothe themselves at all, drape in statuesque folds about their brown limbs and bodies a few yards of white or crimson cloth which adorns rather than conceals. One gasps for breath as there suddenly emerges from a side street what appears to be a fat old lady coming from the bath, her gray hair knotted up carelessly and a towel is her only costume. In reality, there is no cause for alarm. It is a dignified, elderly Malay merchant in conventional business attire. Everyone has long hair and wears it twisted up at the nape of the neck. This, with the absence of beards and the general indeterminateness of attire, makes it difficult to distinguish sexes. The lower class of work people are black, shining, and polished as Indian idols. At work, they wear only a breechcloth, but when evening comes, they catch up a square of creamy, transparent stuff, and by a twist or two of the wrist, fold it beautifully and loosely about themselves, and with erect heads, tread silently away through the dusk, slender, proud, and mysterious-eyed. The Malays are of an exquisite bronze, gleaming in the sun like burnished gold. They have full, silken, inky hair, very white teeth, and dress much in draperies of dull red cotton, which makes them objects delicious to contemplate. Mingled with all these is the ubiquitous Chinaman in a pair of short, loose blue breeches, his handsome muscular body shining as yellow satin. 
we reached the hotel at last its gloom its cloistered arcades and great dark rooms pleasant enough as a refuge from the sun the dining room a great vaulted hall through the centre of the building is level with the earth paved with stone and without doors opening upon the veranda through three archways without windows one can scarcely distinguish anything at first entrance from the glare outside but presently we find the place full of tables of green and growing plants and two huge punkas waving slowly overhead making a cooling breeze we are served by hindus in garments and turbans of white muslin who have slender melancholy brown faces and eyes that shine through wonderful lashes with the soft gleamings of black jewels i can scarcely eat my tiffin for delight in the enchanting pathetic beauty the passionate grace and sadness of the face of the lad who brings me butter in a lordly dish the yellow rolls laid upon banana leaves and serves me curry with a spoon made of a big pink shell every one is in lily white from head to heel like a bride or a debutante white duck trousers and fatigue jacket white helmet and white shoes this is the dress of two young subalterns with heads like canary birds and the sappy red of english beef still in their cheeks just out from home for their first experience of eastern service they are full of energy interest and enthusiasm they order beer and beef and mop their hot faces from time to time listening meanwhile with profound respect to the words of their superior officer who condescends to tiffin with them and to give them good advice his dress is similar to theirs save for the gold straps on his shoulders but all the succulent english flesh has been burned off of him long ago and left him lean tawny and dry he quenches his thirst with a little iced brandy and soda eats sparingly of curry and fruit and seems not to feel the heat much he has no enthusiasms he has no interests except duty in the service and he does not think any brown or yellow person in the least pretty or pleasant his advice to the youngsters while valuable is saturninely patronizing and full of disillusionment and one can see it falls somewhat coldly upon their youthful ardor mine is a huge dim apartment with a stone floor opening directly upon the lawn and into the dining-room and has only slight jalousies for doors but no one peers or intrudes the bed is an iron frame the single hard mattress is spread with a sheet and there are no covers at all even the pillow is of straw my bathroom a lofty flagged chamber opens into this one and contains a big earthenware jar which the coolies fill for me three times a day and into which i plunge to rid me of the burning heat that night i have the most terrible adventure immediately i get into bed and blow out the candle i hear what sounds like some great animal stalking about i am cold enough now icy in fact what can it be they tell me tigers come over from the mainland and carry off on an average one person a day this is probably a tiger he could easily push open those blind doors and walk in he is coming towards the bed with heavy stealthy rustlings there is not even a sheet to draw up over me the room is hot utterly black and still 
save for the sound of those feet and the loud banging of my heart against my ribs. The hotel seems to be dead, so horribly silent it is. Has the tiger eaten everyone else already? The darkness is of no use. He can see all the better for that, so I will strike a match and at least perish in the light. As the blue flame on the wick's tip broadens, I meet the gaze of a frightfully large, calm gray rat, who is examining my shoes and stockings with care. He regards me with only very faint interest, and goes on with his explorations through all my possessions. He climbs the dressing table and smells critically at my hat and gloves. This is almost as bad as the tiger, but as I have no intention of attacking this terrible beast, and my notice appears to bore him, I blow out the candle and go to sleep, leaving him to continue those heavy rustlings which so alarmed me. We secure an open carriage with two fine bronzes in muslin and turbans on the box, and go for a drive. The blonde takes us first to call at a great white airy stone bungalow set on a hill where resides the chief of police, another English officer clad in white, and as brown and lean as are all who have seen long service here. He gives a command in Malay to his kitmogger, and we are served with tea in the Chinese fashion. No other English official can equal him in his knowledge of the Malay tongue and character and for this reason he is sent to conduct negotiations with the sultan of Johor whenever that potentate grows restless. None of his own suite understand what he says while there, but he always comes back with the desired concessions from the monarch, and may therefore be supposed to speak the language convincingly and with eloquence. He has learned in his score of years in the East great gentleness of voice and manner, but underneath it is felt at once the iron texture of this man whom the natives regard with undisguised respect and fear. From his gates the road turns towards the botanical gardens, a great park where wide red ways wind through shaven lawns and under enormous blossoming trees. Every plant one knows as exotic is here quite at home. The giant pads of the Victoria Regia pave the moats with circles of emerald, and the lotus lifts its rose-flushed cups from glassy pools where swans float in shadow. We leave the carriage and pace through the translucent green twilight of the orchid houses built of wire gauze, the plants needing no protection here, where for 6,000 years or so the thermometer has been ranging between 75 and 95 degrees of heat. The place is full of strange, unfamiliar perfumes and grotesque blossoms, ghostly white, pallidly purple, and riven into fantasticalities of scarlet. Our carriage waits for us in the shade of a blooming tree, and returning, we find it sprinkled with small golden trumpets, poignantly sweet. On the way home, we pass the governor's palace with its wonderful palms and bamboos, and it is upon this road that we come suddenly upon a race of brown goddesses, clings they are called, transplanted here from Pondicherry, the fragment of India still retained by France. We pass one alone, then two, then several more going singly along the wide road shaded by enormous trees. 
They are very tall with round, slender limbs. Their garments, a long scarf of thin white wrapped firmly about the hips, drawn lightly over the bosom and crossing the back from shoulder to waist, but half concealed beneath the semi-transparent drapery, the fine outline of breast and hip, clear and firm as ancient statues, and warmly brown with a curious faint bloom, almost as of a grape, upon the skin. As they go forward, lightly and fleetly, on their slim bare feet, they have the proud upstanding grace of palms, and with a strange sinuous motion make all their heavy anklets and bangles tinkle like little bells, and a wave of fluent movement stir their garments from throat to heel. The ripples of their hair, drawn back from the broad brown brows, and knotted in silken abundance at the nape, glitter like polished jet, and the fine haughty dark features lit with little points of gold, tiny studs set in the high nostrils and the upper rims of the little ears. As we pass, they raise languid great eyes of unfathomable blackness, with a gaze half mystical, half sensual, that stirs the heart with a vague sudden pain of yearning and sadness. It is a race famous throughout India for the astonishing beauty of its women, but as they will not allow themselves to be photographed, I can get no record of their loveliness. Half past four. The ship is about to sail. We have wandered through the shops and museums and have returned once more to our old quarters. Tiny canoes cluster about the vessel full of beautiful shells of which one can buy a boatload for a dollar. Other canoes hold small malays ranging from three to seven years of age, all naked save for the merest rag of a breech cloth, all pretty as little bronze curios, and all shouting in shrill chorus for coins. A few shillings changed into the native currency procures a surprising number of small pieces of money, which we fling into the clear water. They plunge over after these with little splashings like frogs, and wiggle down swiftly to the bottom, growing strange and wavering of outline, and ghostly green as they sink. They are wonderfully quick to seize the glinting coin before it touches the sands below, and come up wet, shining, and showing their white teeth. We play at this game until the whistle blows, and then sail away, leaving the blonde waving his handkerchief to us from the shore. An hour later we are still steaming near the palm-fringed coast. There is a sudden cry and struggle forward. A naked yellow body with manacled hands shoots outward from the ship's side and disappears in a boiling circle of foam. A Chinese prisoner, being transported to Penang, has knocked down his guards and taken to the water. The engines are reversed and a life buoy thrown overboard, but he does not appear. After what seems a great lapse of time, a head shows a long distance away and moves rapidly towards the shore. Evidently he has slipped his handcuffs and can swim. A boat is lowered full of lascars, very much excited commanded by the third officer, a ruddy young fellow, calm and dominant. They pursue the head, but it has covered more than half the distance, some two miles, between us and the shore before it is overtaken. There is some doubling back and forth, an oar is raised in menace, and the fugitive submits to be pulled into the boat. I am standing by the gangway when he returns. 
he is a fine well-built young fellow his crime is forgery and he is to be turned over to the native authorities against whom he is offended their punishments are terrible prisoners receive no food and must depend upon the memories and mercies of the charitable one of the lascars holds him by the queue as he mounts the steps he is wet and chilled and has a face of stolid despair they take him forward and i see him no more it is christmas day still very hot and off to our right are to be seen from time to time the bold purple outlines of the coasts of sumatra the ship is decorated with much variegated bunting and the servants assume an air of languid festivity but most of us suffer from plaintive reminiscences of home and nostalgia there is a splendid plum cake for dinner with a santa claus atop huddled in sugar furs despite the burning heat we pull christmas crackers as in the holidays at home and from their contents i am loaded with paste jewels and profusely provided with poetry in brief segments and of an enthusiastically amatory nature penang its peaks shoot sharply up into the blue air two thousand feet wrapped in a tangle of prodigious verdure to their very tops enormous palm forests fringing all the shore the ship anchors some distance from the docks and will remain but a few hours we are ferried to land in crazy sampans the only alternative from outrigger canoes a narrow trough set on a round log and kept upright by a smaller floating log connected with the boat by bent poles only a native a tightrope walker or a bicyclist would trust himself to these the same crowd of hindus malays and chinese little girls of twelve or thirteen stand about with their own children in their arms they have been wives for a year or two very pretty they are miniature women fully formed the babies fat and brown and nearly as large as the mothers a gary and another pitiful little horse take us towards the gardens and the famous waterfall the road skirts the town and intersects lagoons where malay houses of coconut thatch stand upon piles like ancient lake dwellings they live over this stagnant water by preference and apparently suffer no harm farther on where the ground rises are the huge stone bungalows of english officials and rich chinese merchants the entrance to the grounds of the latter adorned with ornate doors and guarded by carved monsters curiously colored we overtake a chinese funeral winding towards the cemetery all the mourners clad in white the coffin of unpainted wood is so heavy and so large that twenty pallbearers are required to carry it it is a most cheerful cortege no one seems in the least downcast or dispirited by this bereavement death is accepted by that race with the same stolid philosophy as are the checkered incidents of life the road turns and sweeps into the palm forest innumerable slender silver-gray columns soar to an astonishing height a hundred feet or more bearing at the top a wide feathery crown where the big globes of the coconuts hang green and gold up there in the tops of the palms flows a dazzling flood of light and as the faint warm wind waves the huge drooping fans we catch flashes of flaming blue but below we are in shadow and cannot feel the wind's breath 
a profound green twilight reigns here with something i know not what of holy sadness and awe amid these silent gray aisles delicate lofty still such as might move the heart in an ancient minister's calm pillared silences our guide a brown lad of ten stands on the carriage step clinging to the door and chatters fluently in tangled and intricate english of which he is obviously inordinately vain at the garden entrance he makes us dismount vehicles not being allowed inside and leads us along the broad beautifully tended paths the garden lies between two very lofty cone-shaped peaks and is as well kept and full of tropical blossoms and verdure as are all the others we have seen the boy stops to show me in the grass tiny fronds of the sensitive plant that shudder away from his rude little finger with a voluntary movement startling to see in a plant we hear the rushing speech of waters calling loudly in the hills but see nothing save the mountain's garments of opulent verdure a path zigzags sharply upward through the trees and vine labyrinth and by this the boy leads the way with the speed and agility of a goat we pant along in his wake barely keeping him in sight it is frightfully hot in here among the trees the atmosphere is a steam bath and the moisture pours down our faces as we spring from stone to stone and corkscrew back and forth deafened by the vociferations of the fall but catching no glimpse of it exhausted gasping streaming with perspiration we finally emerge upon a plateau high on the peak's side and are suddenly laved in that warm wind that stirred the palm fronds at our feet is a wide quivering green pool crossed by a frail bridge from far above leaps down to us a flood of glittering silver that dashes the emerald pool into powdery foam races away under the bridge and springs again with a shout into the thickets below we lose sight of it amid the leaves but can hear its voice as it leaps from ledge to ledge down to the valley and is silenced at last in the river a tiny shrine built here at the side of this first pool is tended by a thin melancholy-eyed young priest who lives alone at this great height his only companions the ceaseless bruit of the waters and the little black elephant-headed god in the shrine he bears a spot of dried clay upon his forehead a token of humility at his morning devotions he dips his hand in the water then in the dust touches it upon his brow and wears this sign of submission all day i lay a piece of money upon the altar and in return am given a handful of pale perfumed pink bells that grow upon the mountainside and are the only sacrifice offered to the little black god the priest will have me remove my hat and decorate my hair with the flowers in the fashion in which his countrywomen wear them and is pleased when i comply back again through the steaming woods and the palm aisles then the ship once more and our faces are turned toward ceylon end of chapter five recording by holly jensen